you may have a seat, and as you are children, you are dismissed to your kids' class at this time. Thank you, worship team, for all of that. And again, it's good to be together and sing God's praises this morning to direct our hearts to Him at the first day of the week. And I want to invite you to turn your, in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Most of you know that we are in the book of Titus, and we'll actually be finishing that book this morning. Small book of Titus, only three chapters. I don't know about you, but it's tough for me to finish books. You know what I mean? Like, it's just you start them, you have great ambitions, and then somewhere along the line, either you're distracted or you lose interest, or maybe you already know the end, and, or you've read the book before, whatever reason. It's hard to finish books. My wife's smiling at me because she knows that's true. Um, there's far more books I'd like to read than actually can read or finish. But we, here we are, the end of Titus this morning, some good stuff before us in the text in uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. I guess you could say that anything uh, worth doing is difficult to finish, isn't it? Anything you set your mind to, it seems like sometimes the inst- instant you do that, Uh, there's a temptation or there's a distraction to pull your mind away from what you wanted to do at the the onset of that ambition. Perhaps it's something you love to do, and it's easier to carry you through it. Perhaps it's something you don't love to do, and it's a little bit more of a difficult task to persevere and to really finish and complete and do what Titus uh, is told to do and told to instruct his churches or the church on Crete, and that is to do good works. I think that is just something that life is made up of, is as soon as the Spirit prompts us, or as soon as we have this good desire to do what's right, temptation lies close at hand to swerve us from the good or to put obstacles in the way to finish well. And that's what Titus is commanded to do this morning. And really, it's a determination to do good. It is difficult to continue to live a lifestyle of selflessness rather than what sin has bound us in, and that is selfishness. That really is the DNA of the fall, isn't it? That's the tragedy of the fall, is that we thought we would actually be benefited by taking of the tree of knowledge and good of evil, but of course it caused the opposite, and that is a world that swirls around us, that gets tighter and tighter and tighter the more we fall into sin, yet how good is the grace of God to stop that churning inward and to release us from ourselves and to become men and women who can empty themselves for the sake of of the gospel. But even though we have that power within us, temptation lies close at hand to distract us from that. And I think of, as I was preparing this week, I think of that verse in Matthew chapter 5, 16, where it says that Christ is instructing His, his disciples, but also the crowds in general, a greater, probably a much greater people. On the Sermon on the Mount, He, is, he says to them, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before men. So it's your your living life, your out uh, in, in really culture, 
And you're doing these good deeds not to just take the glory on yourselves, but to deflect that or to reflect the God who has given you that faith. And I think that really is the heart of the message of Titus, is to preach the good news and so that it produces good works. And we're going to take a look at his determination to do good in this text this morning. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Michael brought us to verse 8 last week, and we will stitch this in and include it in our text this morning and finish the end of the book. Chapter 3, verse 8 of Titus says, "...the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works." These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What a wonderful passage and wonderful conclusion to this very small book. But there are a few things in here that I think Paul is emphasizing to Titus as he closes his book to say, don't forget about these things. And I think we see a message here this morning that Titus must determine to do good, first of all, by prioritizing the application of doctrine, prioritizing the application of doctrine. Let's just park it here just for a minute as we've heard this for several weeks, but to remind ourselves of what motivates the good work. You and I, I think we know this, that good works are motivated by the gospel. They're generated by the gospel. But how exactly does that work? I just, you can take this or leave it, but it's, I just thought of these four G's that Titus is to insist on these things really quick but he's supposed to be confident in these things because it's the actual gospel itself. And Michael went through this last week. As he teaches the glories of the gospel, that generates good works, okay? As he teaches the glories of the gospel, it generates good works. And that's not where we're going fully this morning. That's really just the foundation and the start and a quick review of the book of Titus. But as Titus is dedicated to preaching the gospel that will generate the right motivations for good works. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hang on to that, write it down, and remember that good works are always generated by meditation, by belief in the gospel that God has come to save you and I. And we can review that, but we won't, but it's chapter 3, right? We were running around doing all kinds of things that were being hated by others and hating ourselves. We were devoted to our own passions and our own pleasures. We had nothing better to do. We were foolish. We were darkened in our understanding. 
And yet the grace of God appears and frees us from that. And this is why it's important to get this right, to know, understand where our roots actually come from. Notice the word, look it down at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who, what, have believed in God, those who have believed in God then can become and should be devoted to good works. I think of that parable that Christ taught where a man came into the banquet where he had invited all kinds from the streets and from town, and he came in, but he was not clothed in a wedding garment. And remember, the host says to him, hey, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he's speechless. He doesn't know what to say. And he says to cast that person out. And I think that's a good parallel to building our lives on good works, pursuing good works, yet if we're not clothed in the righteous robes of Christ, in the end, we'll find out it was really just all about ourselves still. Good works easily become about ourselves if Christ is not our foundation, and indeed, if we're not clothed in His righteousness, our good works really aren't that good at all. So we have to be rightly rooted, and it says that in 3.8, that to have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And what this is talking about is a holistic, I don't know if you know that word, just basically it's not spelled W-H-O-L, although I guess it could be, but holistic, meaning the entirety of life, H-O-L-I. Holistic lifestyle is what's going on here, that those in Crete would begin to live everyday life for giving glory to God by their good works. It's really just taking faith and putting it into action. I'm sure you've heard several sermons on working out your faith or applying the doctrine that you know, and this is the big message of Titus. As we live in God's house, that our time, our resources, indeed really our habitual activity is given over for the sake of others to demonstrate an authentic faith. As Michael suggested last week, you could go back in chapter 2, and we're not going to take the time, but we've already worked through this text. But in chapter 2, it just gives a few ways in which young men can be devoted to good works. It only gives young men one thing, and that is be self-controlled. Interesting that he only gave young men that one command, huh? Or older men, he gives them six things to take care of. Of course, these are categories, and it moves way outside of these categories. Or you may, maybe I should say within these categories are wells of good works that one could commit his or her life to do, to teach what is good for older women, to teach younger women. There's a litany of things we could go into that an older woman must teach a younger woman. Uh, to be dignified in speech, to have integrity, all of these are categories or wells of, of ways you could dive into and understand, okay, how do I apply integrity? Just that one word. How do I show integrity in all the areas of my life and to work through that. Those would be good works that Paul has already suggested to Titus. But look at the reason why. Why should we prioritize applying right doctrine? Look at the end of verse 8. We're to devote ourselves to good works. Why? These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
It doesn't just mean like, hey, they're good for good's sake. They eternally build up those who are impacted by them. Not only do they build up somebody who is in the faith, but for someone who is outside the faith, it gives them a visible demonstration of a hidden faith. Does, does that make sense? It, it's faith, you cannot see faith in, in a sense. It's an invisible trait that we would carry with us as Christians. But as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as you go from place to place or from opportunity to opportunity or relationship to relationship, that faith begins to have a visible demonstration. Something intangible becomes very tangible. Something unseen becomes seen. So it's profitable and they're excellent and they, they, they build Christians up and they give unbelievers a demonstration to say, what's going on with that person? What's going on inside there? Tell me about what makes you tick. Tell me why you didn't respond like that when everybody else would have responded uh, in an opposite way. So this, they're, they're good, they're excellent, they're profitable for people. They, they actually are meeting real needs. And I, just a quick note on who are they to be directed for. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Okay, so, so who do I do my good deeds toward? Is it anyone and everyone? Is it someone far away? Is it someone near? And really the answer to that is yes. It's whoever God has put on your heart, put in front of you. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. We're not going to get into all this until a little bit down further in the text, and we'll, we'll open it up further. But it's anyone, and I would remind us of that command in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. It's a good parallel to this. He just says, hey, be committed to doing good. But you remember how he qualifies it? Especially to those who are of the household of faith. If there's an emphasis, it's toward believers. We think of Jesus' words himself that they would, know, they would know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. That's how faith demonstrates. And if, if you're wondering how this might be developed in us, so you're thinking, okay, do, do, am I doing good works? Am I, am I committed to a life, a habitual uh, lifestyle of good works? You have to ask yourself these questions. And I want to say what it's not, and that is, it's certainly not the deeds of the flesh, right? It's certainly not doing wrong things in Galatians chapter 5 or many other places we could find. It's, it's certainly not doing what's wrong. But it's, I also want to help us understand that it's not just doing, quote-unquote, spiritual things. We have to think outside of this category of good works are spiritually, uh, just this spiritual realm. All right, you probably could think with me, the, 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 the churchy things, all right? Now, not to diminish the churchy things. Those are good. Going to church is good, is it not? Meditating on God's Word daily is a good thing. Um, praying for the needs of others is a good thing. But let's not box good works down to those just spiritual only things. And I say spiritual because we think of them innately as spiritual. But it's far beyond that, far beyond that. And I would say how these can be developed is, I'll just give you a few things here. I think as we process the love of God 
personally, not generally, but we process the love of God personally for me as an individual by name, my heart then begins to change. Of course, the Holy Spirit, if, if I believed in Christ, is in me and giving me the power to walk away from my own desires and open up my heart and my mind and my eyes to the needs of other people. So as I become saved in Christ, my heart even now has the ability to look outside of itself, to look past my own needs and begin to think about and take up the needs of others. My, my heart begins to soften in ways before I could just care less about. My heart begins to soften towards my neighbor, begins to soften towards those who have a need, and there's opportunity. Um, I think it's only by God's grace that true compassion is really developed, right? Um, there's a lot of good works to be done, but it's by God's grace that compassion allows my heart to shift from spending all of its time to thinking about, how can everybody else serve me? How can the world be worked for my advantage? How can I do things? How can I step on people to get places or to get things? And that heart that is, that is angry or that is hating of other people or is just foolishly chasing its own passions begins to soften, and there's room made for this act of self-emptying and compassion. And you could say for the believer, the more I meditate on the goodness of God's salvation to me, the more I'm freed up from dwelling on myself and dwelling on how others might serve me and begin to serve them. That's how a good relationship works, right? That's how a good marriage should work is that we're not thinking about all the, the list that someone's not meeting. We're thinking about how blessed am I to be loved by God. Now I can in turn work this salvation out and love others. And I think prayers indeed would help us develop eyes and develop minds and develop hearts that start looking for opportunities and start seeing needs that could have been there all along. But when we're, when we're just doing our own thing or we're prayerless, and I would say prayerlessness is an act of independence, when we're prayerless, we, we don't see these things. We, we miss them. We're blind to the needs of other people. And I think actually we really need God's grace to continue and follow through as well. So let's just sum up this first point in this way. When the gospel is stressed, you can guarantee that good works will follow. When the gospel is insisted on, when you dwell on and meditate on the glories of the gospel, good works will follow. And this in turn, it's reciprocal. This in turn will then adorn the original doctrine. It will adorn the gospel. The gospel generates good works. Good works adorn the gospel. And this wheel keeps on turning. But let's get into verses 9 through the end of the chapter where Paul gives a few more specific instructions to Timothy. In knowing what to prioritize, we also have to know what not to prioritize. Isn't that part of life? Isn't that really a, a principle for life? 
is doing anything good, doing anything you could call quote-unquote successful, doing anything profitable really does require us, if we're going to put our mind to something, if we're going to do good, it also is saying no a hundred or a thousand times to other things that are outside of that focus. It's also knowing how to avoid things and knowing how to do good. And that's the second, really, the command is, it's right on the surface of the text there, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies or foolish debates. Avoid foolish debates. This is an interesting point because it, it really kind of harkens back to what Paul has already said in the first chapter of, of Titus, to Titus, is that there's many who are insubordinate and they have to be silenced because they're basically teaching false doctrine. And he says to avoid foolish debate because I think there's a tendency here for Titus and also for Timothy, really for any of us, but especially a young shepherd, to think that every doctrinal difference is something to engage on, or every debate, every controversy is a fire that needs to be put out. And Titus is warned, hey, avoid, actually, rather than pursuing every controversy you could be a part of or debate, it's actually wise to back off of foolish controversies. Now, notice that foolish is the key modifier there, because we have to remember There's other places in Titus and Timothy and other places in Scripture that says to actually go engage (laughs) in something that is difficult, like a controversy or a debate. Uh, I don't think he could could really work out how he was supposed to shepherd in chapter 1 without having some kind of debate with these teachers. But the key modifier here is foolish avoid foolish debates, avoid foolish conversations. Not a command to be someone who avoids conflict at all costs, not someone who avoids the conversation or avoids doctrinal clarity. We can't go there, but someone who has the wisdom to avoid a foolish controversy. And it says here in the rest of nine, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. What are these? Genealogies, very quickly, would be most likely a Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament that is also linked with Jewish myth. Paul calls these Jewish myths in 1 Timothy. And it's really, to break it down, it's this idea that you're talking about things that you really cannot go back and prove in one way or the other. In the end, they're completely inconclusive. So it's, it's, kinda, it's not just questions like, can God make a rock that he can't lift? It's not, it's not just talking about maybe esoteric things that sound um, like things that can never be worked out. It's reading the Old Testament in a way that is interpreting it that is completely off base. And this is something that Titus would have had to deal with. So it turns into more of Jewish legend rather than the, the Old Testament itself. Dissensions, strife, some of your, your versions have strife. These are literally word battles, word battles. This is, this is not necessarily, again, something that you can't ever have the opposite viewpoint of something, but this is generally the tone that would be set in one of these discussions, not so much a discussion as is 
a heated debate. And that's the nature, the tone that these controversies or these debates would take on. And they certainly would reflect more Cretan values than what Christ established, right? Lastly, there's quarrels about the law, which would be, this is something Jesus himself would have interfaced with, with the Pharisees who were constantly saying, yeah, but this is what the rabbis say about Moses. This is would be interpretations of Jewish law, again, most likely based on rabbinic tradition, that Titus would think, oh, the best use of my time is to help this, turn this person in the argument and get him or her to see the right way. But not so. It says that you're to avoid foolish controversies, and we'll look at why. Why exactly avoid these foolish controversies? Look, look down at verse 9 at the end there. At the end, it says to avoid them because, for they are unprofitable and worthless. A clear contrast to the end of verse 8, right? Things that are excellent and profitable, here's where we need to spend our time. These are good works. Things that are unprofitable and worthless, these are word battles, quarrels, dissensions, controversies. And I think there are just a few things here of why these are unprofitable and worthless, and maybe starting in order of least importance to greatest and strongest and most dangerous, I would say they're a waste of time, right? You've got better things to do than argue about something that in the end, maybe the other person doesn't know it, but you know it's going to be inconclusive. It's just arguing for arguing's sake sometimes. Walk away from those moments, he's telling Titus. So it's time wasted. So instead of good works, we're doing arguments and debates. Why else? Because in verse uh, 11 of chapter 1, you have, there's many who are insubordinate and they're of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for, teaching for shameful game what they not, ought, ought not to teach. So there's not just a waste of time, there's a, these are spiritually distracting conversations. They're, they're not good for the people who engage in them. They go nowhere, and I would say they leave the relationship worse off than where the conversation began. It's not ironing, sharpening iron. This is just a battle. And there are conversations where iron does sharpen iron, and that is good because it leaves both parties in a better place, even if in the, in the end of the argument they're, they're still on opposite sides of that. There's a way to engage in debate that is uplifting. These are those that are spiritually distracting, upsetting, even dangerous, and they just go nowhere. But I think last of all, the reason these are so <clears throat> unprofitable and worthless is because such discussions or debates, they usually come with this guise of depth and understanding and higher knowledge and a greater way to figure out something and do the Christian life, and yet they hollow out the proponents of those views. They sound deep, but in the end, they make you shallow is really the, why they're unprofitable. 
They tempt others to do the same, don't they? Isn't that what a, sometimes a, a really heady debate can do? Is it kind of can make us feel smart about ourselves and like we've really understood, but sometimes it's just about us and not about getting to the truth. So this is what happens if someone is to insist on that, verse 10. Look at verse 10. Gets a little more serious here for a second before he concludes. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's really strong right at the end of our, our letter here. That you, you think the right thing to do is always engage in the debate or always go toward, and it might be wise to say, no, I'm going to back away from that. I'm not going to spend my time foolishly engaging in arguments. And it says here to admonish this person or to really to warn him. That's the, that's the word there, to admonish, to warn. And that is someone who is clearly trying to cut and divide and destroy with the words and the teachings that they esteem as better than the Word of God itself. And really, the, the characteristic described here for divisive is someone who obstinately retains his or her own belief in opposition to the Word of God. And that's why it's fair to this person who could be blind, who could be foolish, who is an heir, that this person needs to be warned, but not just once, but then twice. That's a, that's a fair way to treat this person who is really promoting error amongst believers as Titus is instructed, hey, for that kind of person, that kind of person is to be dealt with in a really serious way. And it, re it reflects what we've already learned and studied in Titus chapter 1. But we're to warn two distinct and separate times in order to show love, in order to show the correct way of teaching, in order to be patient, in order to let that person have a chance to walk away from what they've perhaps held on to for a while. But in the end, the, the right thing isn't to let the air persist. If this person still holds on to that after the correction, then it's not right to just delay any further. This is a person who persists in air. What to do next? It's really sad. It's, it's sobering and the most difficult thing to do, perhaps, in ministry is to avoid, some of your Bibles would say reject. It really means to shun or have nothing to do with. You say, wow, Titus is going to have to be so mean on the island of Crete. Titus is going to have to be this nasty preacher who goes around pushing people out of the churches who are divisive. No. Who's doing the work here? Who's forcing the issue? It's the divisive person. And we have to be, we have to be aware of that because we've had uh, more than one experience, at least in my lifetime, where a divisive person usually wants to make it about you being the meanie rather than them being the one who's divisive. And that comes with the territory of being divisive, is accusing those who would pursue in truth and in love. 
It's to try to turn the tables. It's to throw smoke screens. It's to blame shift. It's to avoid responsibility. And that's why the best thing to do here is silence, which is, you can even feel it right now. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? To have somebody back away from you because you are determined that you're going to lift your opinion above what God's Word clearly teaches is a sad place to be. And silence is actually very powerful because what once you're like, oh, I love these debates and they're just going at it. And then a Titus has the wisdom to walk away from that. You're like, ah, but I want that kind of grappling tension that I can espouse my own opinion or my own viewpoint or my own belief. And Titus is instructed, don't get caught in that. Don't, don't fall for the trap that these teachers would be setting to always engage in debate. Instead, he's supposed to avoid the person after clearly warning him, being fair, being loving, being patient, after once, not just once, but then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing, look at what it says in verse 11, this is why, Titus, you have to know that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. And some of your translations will have the word perverted, and we often think of perverted in a Western context as always something sexual, although it is sexual, it's not just sex, it could be sexually perverted. Perverted simply means twisted or bent out of shape or, or marred or really taken in a way that was never intended to be. And notice the, the, the also not just warped, but sinful. And I like how the NASB says is sinning because that reflects the verb tense there where he is in a state of sin. Not just sinful as in his being. Yeah, yeah, everybody's a sinner. No, that he's in this state of being in sin. It's a lifestyle of sin. So the self-condemnation comes as being told truth. If I'm the divisive person and I'm being told truth and I'm saying, no, I'm going to push back. I'm going to resist that truth, obstinately oppose the truth. That's someone who's deliberately missing God's word for them and are, they are self-condemned, rejecting even apostolic in Christ's authority here. It's quite a sober text. This is not often looked at. We, we, we have a couple other passages in the New Testament. Galatians 6, Matthew 18, that would reflect these, this same ethos and the same principles here. But here Titus is told to walk away from the divisive person in order to de- to determined to do good. Titus has to know what to prioritize, know what to avoid, and that includes wastes of time and spiritually dangerous conversation. So he must be a courageous person. Go back to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 7. Actually, let's start in verse 6 because we think Titus was on the younger men uh, group of things. Chapter 2, verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in, te- and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech 
that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Isn't that amazing? This really reflects 2 Timothy 2. I'd encourage you to look at that cross-reference when you get a chance. 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 25, Paul's giving Timothy these instructions and saying, hey, you've got to be patient with all people. So when you're, if you're losing it with these people that espouse error, you, you, in a sense, mar the picture of the gospel yourself. That's why Timothy and Titus have to be patient. They have to show integrity in their speech so that even when an opponent is put to shame, there's nothing evil to say back against Titus and Timothy. Indeed, one of the most difficult tasks to do when error is espoused. But lastly, I would say this about the tough job that Timothy has in warning these types of people and also avoiding. But think of it this way. What happens if Titus doesn't do this? You ever ask yourself that question? What if Titus is like, eh, I don't care about 310. Okay, I don't think he had 310, but <laughs> I don't care about the last paragraph in the letter. What happens if, if, if Titus abdicates on, on rebuking or warning these divisive people? Think about that for a second. What happens to the other people who are intent on doing good in that Christian community when you let the person who divides run around, have their way, have their words? You see, Titus is doing his job as a good shepherd to protect the flock when he engages in this kind of really courageous and self-controlled dignified activity. He protects the flock, not only spiritually, but in the context we're dealing with, he protects the flock so that they're freed up to do the good deeds and not waste all of their time having arguments and divisive uh, debates about the law. Titus, in order to be the, the shepherd he needs to be here, has to fulfill this ministry in verse 10 and 11. Look at the last part of this book. Sometimes we're not sure exactly what to do at the end of books like this. You're like, okay, there's a bunch of names and some places, and uh, what's happening here? And why does Paul mention this? Why doesn't he mention four other names? Why doesn't he mention 10 other places? Why doesn't he go on for a whole chapter like he does in Romans 16 or 1 Corinthians? But here it's just, you know, quick little paragraph. He talks about Artemis. He talks about Tychicus. He mentions the name of Zenos. Notice he's a lawyer. Notice he's a lawyer. There's a chance, all right? So that's, that's, in, that's intended. There's probably Roman law, not Jewish law, based on his name, uh, being named after a god. And Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So really you have a bunch of comings and goings of servants of the gospel. So it's really a, an emphasis to Titus, hey, as you're ministering on Crete, be ready to leave yourself because I'm sending Tychicus or I'm sending Artemis, not sure which one yet, to relieve you of your duties on Crete. So you would come join me at Nicopolis, which is probably in modern-day Greece somewhere. There's, there's a lot of cities named Nicopolis in uh, this time, so we're not exactly sure which one it was. But uh, he says, I want you to join me there. But really, all of these 
men are promoting the mission of God in this Mediterranean theater where the New Testament is really encompasses the whole New Testament. But you can understand this from the book of Acts and see how the gospel spread from Jerusalem across the Mediterranean. These men are engaged in that missional work. And he's being told, hey, help these guys out. Um, Be ready to be relieved. Um, He's going to winter in this place called Nicopolis. But do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. And I don't think Zenos and Apollos were on vacation. And he's saying, hey, uh, just, you know, help them have a good time on Crete. It's a great spot to get some sun and show them, you know, just show them around. Be a good tour guide. Obviously not instructing Titus to do that, but really to help them in the ministry that Apollos and Zenos would have had for the gospel. That's what Titus needs to lead in and mobilizing the church to do so um, as he prepares this church for himself to be replaced by Artemis or Tychicus. But notice the last time, verse 14, one more time, the very end of the letter, Paul is saying, and let our people learn to devote themselves to what? What? Good works. You've seen it. This is now the sixth time that Paul has said this to Titus. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. And really, this is speeding along Zenos and Apollos. In other words, take care of anything they need to get the job done in order for the gospel to flourish in this island of Crete. And this, this term, it says learn to devote, as I said, it's mentioned a sixth time. Really, that term learn to is simply have them engage in. So actually go and do it. That's what this, this means, to not, not just learn like, hey, let's, let's go around, teach them to watch you doing good works, Titus. And then that's not exactly the idea. It's simply that they would jump in and be involved when guys like Apollos come through or Zenos help them understand how that is being devoted to good works. These are urgent, pressing, indispensable, even common needs that these missionaries would have had. And um, if I can for a second, I think just take a moment, just so we understand, I think we know what a good work is, but I want to give you a few examples or categories. So if in case you have a few boxes, it might Um, shake those a little bit and understand what good works could be as we've been told a sixth time to learn how to devote ourselves to them. Um, Just a few examples, they could be helping others physically, relationally, spiritually, financially, even emotionally. Or it could be something as light as just doing dishes, feeding a pet, um, changing the oil, or making sure it's changed. I'm not sure. Hanging a picture. Okay, it's giving of yourself. It's self-emptying in a way that's giving of your time and resources, even to the point where you're truly sacrificing for the needs of other people. It's not going up to the point of saying, eh, I'll do all this, but I'm not going to sacrifice. It's pressing into that that margin, if you will, of sacrifice and saying, I'm going to do this, even though I might not have the time to do this, I'm going to give my time to do that, or I'm going to give towards this need, or I'm going to 
have this conversation. I'm going to write, take the time to write this note of encouragement. It's pressing into our own self. But then you might ask yourself, but in a culture, and I would even say an entire Western culture given over to good works for the most part, even in a city that may boast of its own good works, you're asking yourself, how do you, okay, so there's this person who's I know is not a believer outdoing me in good works. So if I'm, how, how does that even work in a Western culture where good works are esteemed and good works are done, you could say by those who don't know Christ, but we already talked about that at the beginning, that, that, that might, that's not a, necessarily a good work, okay? We're not talking about that. How do you distinguish, or how is the church distinguished? And I would say it's in these ways as well. It is in those basic ways, but it's also perhaps more clearly seen when unbelievers are living alongside of you close enough to see those moments that are undoubtedly Spirit-empowered moments. It's, it's, it's moments that would contrast somebody who is not a believer would certainly not act like that in this situation, but you, because you're a believer, do act like that. Or perhaps it's opposite. You don't act like something that you would maybe be expected to. It's in undeniably Spirit-empowered ways, perhaps responding to evil with good. Responding to evil with good. That's why this is so important for a believer, because evil comes at us. And if I just pop back with my own evil, there's no distinguishing mark of a believer, only that I'm acting human. Uh, perhaps it's suffering with patience and joy. Not just suffering, everybody has to suffer, but it's suffering with patience and joy and thankfulness and praise comes out of our lips rather than bitterness and anything else that comes to our, our hearts and minds as we suffer. Perhaps it's sexual purity in a very perverse culture. Perhaps it's keeping our eyes on eternal things instead of temporal things. Having a mindset that thinks eternally versus just stuff in front of our face. Um, perhaps it's singing God's praise or being thankful or praising other people, being thankful for other people. But it really comes out especially in the way that we treat one another. And again, John 13, 35, that's how we are known is in the way we treat and love one another. It could be at a normal job. It could be at home. It could be in academics. It could be in the public square. It could be in a private moment. It could be personal. It could be corporate. It could be any of these things could encompass good work, a, a theater for good works. And I would say categorically it includes both common moments and holy or spiritual moments. It includes tangible and intangible, relational and personal. It could be your career. It could be your hobby. It could be directly affecting someone or it could indirectly affect someone and still be a good work. Virtually it's this, that anything done on the foundation of Christ for God's glory, all of life becomes this theater for good works. All of life can be turned into a good work. And he says, don't let them fall into an unfruitful, really kind of lethargy or just kind of a status quo of being unfruitful. Christ himself said that God, the Father, is well pleased when we bear 
that fruit. Remember that in John 15? It's my Father's will that you bear much fruit. And here's our, here's our end today. He says that grace, verse 15, all who are with me send greetings. So he greets him, says greetings back, greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be with you all. Here's really our conclusion of Titus and of today is that as we teach the doctrine of the gospel, that doctrine in, in turn inspires duty. And that duty in turn adorns the gospel. That's really the message of Titus. And of course, we need God's grace to do it all. And we get to celebrate that this morning as we come before the Lord's table because how joyless of an existence is it when we attempt to do the good and yet we've forgotten that we've been saved by grace in Christ Jesus. Indeed, that could be the most joyless existence on the face of the earth, is someone trying to do good and grind it out, but without Christ. And he ends by saying, grace be with you all. We've come full circle. Let's go to prayer as we conclude and prepare for the Lord's table this morning. Our Heavenly Father, God, there's so much in even little texts that are rich with your truth, and every word is inspired, and we can learn from it all. We can learn how to live lives that are dedicated to you, dedicated to good works for the sake of other people that the world might see and wonder what faith exists inside of us. And Lord, I do pray that our hearts would habitually and just go back to the gospel, go back to your grace that has saved us. And we thank you we can celebrate that in the form of the Lord's table even this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.